Better. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. What a joy it is to gather as the body of Christ. Isn't Sunday a relief? It's a relief from the world. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. And what we're doing is bolstering our readiness as a church, strengthening our understanding of what it means to be a church that pleases the Lord. And I just think this is so undertaught. And so we've listed a number of actions beginning back in 1 Timothy 4 that the God-glorifying church is doing. And today I'd like to talk about honoring the name. Honoring the name, the reputation of God. Now, so far, beginning in 1 Timothy 5, Paul has addressed four groups. He's addressed generations in the church, the older men, the younger men, the older women, younger women, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He's addressed the widows and those who are vulnerable in the church in verses 3 through 16. He's addressed elders, the leadership of the church, in chapter 5, 17 through 25. And now he addresses a fourth group in the church, the group the Bible calls the slaves. The slaves. The New Testament's instructions to slaves in the church of Jesus Christ is extensive. And I won't go through all of this, although we'll refer to some of them as we go. 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians 3, Galatians 5, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, Titus chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. What does this tell us? It tells us that there were many, many slaves who worshipped Christ who had come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. They had just as much need of Christ as those in the highest earthly positions. Now, you might be wondering how a passage on slaves in the ancient world and in the ancient church could possibly have relevance to you today. But just like all of the Word of God, what we're going to find in these two little verses in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 is really a goldmine of Christian living principles, a goldmine of how we in the church are to operate. We're going to find a goldmine of biblical worldview principles, which leads to how to be content, how to be joyful, how to be a good witness in the world. So there's just a, a treasure trove here for us to look at. In fact, there's so much here that trying to organize this information, it almost presented too many choices. I kind of felt like a, a five-year-old in a 20,000-square-foot candy store. Like, where do you start? It's sensory overload. So I'm going to do, as I, as I do on occasion, a classic Puritan sermon outline. I'm going to explain the text. I'm going to give you the doctrine of the text. And then we're going to apply the text. Now, I think that's the easiest way for us to do this. So let's explain the text first. I'm going to read to you 1 Timothy 6, 1 and most of verse 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So I want to take some time just to explain the text. In verse 1, Paul is concerned with the conduct of Christian slaves who have any master. And in verse 2, he is more specifically concerned about the conduct of Christian slaves with Christian masters. In other similar passages, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4... Paul also addresses the Christian masters in this particular case for reasons known to Paul and, and to the Lord. To the church at Ephesus here in 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the slaves only. 
Verse 1 implies that some slaves were guilty of disrespecting their masters. Therefore, he is addressing this. Now, he uses the common phrase, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants. I, I remember a small child asking me once, what does an egg have to do with this here? This is not like an egg yoke. I realize that most of us weren't raised on a farm. And so what is a yoke? It's an agricultural term. A yoke is a, is a wooden single or double kind of a collar for harnessing an animal or a pair of animals to, to pull farm equipment. And so it kept them together, but it, it, it was led around. The yoke said you were, you were under somebody else's control. This picture of a yoke, it stresses the harsh reality that someone else controls where you go, what you do, when you do it, and how you do it. It was a common term for slavery, to be under the yoke. But Paul is very clear here. He says, let all, every Christian slave, no exceptions, behave properly. I should point out that the English Standard Version here translates doulos, as bondservant, someone who's under a contract that ends at a, at a set time, not so much of an ownership situation. Some would say that the translation slave might give the wrong idea that all slavery was bad, but bondservant gives the idea that none of it was bad. And so it's best to let the context make that decision, but generally speaking, slave is a much more preferred translation. That's the reality. These are slaves. This is a man or a woman designated as property, somebody under contract to a master, usually in a household doing anything from the most menial tasks all the way up to managing an entire household as the manager. The traditional translation that we have here, even in the ESV, it shies away from the more literal translation of slave. The preface to the English Standard Version makes an admission. It says, quote, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America, unquote. So they often use bond servant to per- perhaps reflect a softer version of slavery. I understand their thinking, but let me tell you what this is. What this is, is them admitting that cultural pressure from non-believers affected their translation. There were different versions of slavery in the Old Testament. Slavery could be at times a blessing. You could enter into slavery to pay off a debt or to escape poverty. If you owed somebody the equivalent of $100,000, you could say, how about I work for you for three years and pay it off completely? It was considered a, a, a wondrous ideal. In fact, the situation at times was so helpful that a slave had the option to elect to make a lifetime commitment to a master who had been good to him, had taken care of him, taken care of his family. It was also possible to be enslaved involuntarily by birth, by being captured in battle, or even as a punishment for a crime. In the New Testament world, like the Old Testament, there were various degrees of slavery, from the more dehumanizing types all the way to the honored managers of wealthy households that that today would be considered in a managerial position. Now, it's not my point today to go into the history of slavery, but I do have to make a few facts known. Slavery has existed almost since the dawn of human history and pretty much every single culture has engaged in it. The single example of slavery that you were taught in public school is this one example, that those with lighter skin, sometimes called white, 
have enslaved those with darker skin, sometimes called black. Now, I say sometimes called white and sometimes called black because science has proven that everybody is a different shade of brown. There's no white or black. That's the single example that we've been taught. But history also shows that those with darker skin have sometimes enslaved those with lighter skin. Between 1530 and 1780, African Muslims captured and enslaved over a million European Christians. You don't hear about that in the history books. Slavery has existed in every major culture, and and for most of human history, skin color has not been a determining factor. It's been nationality, religion, or poverty. Those have been the determining factors. So to say that all slavery has been the same is not historically accurate. The question is often asked, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Why, why doesn't it do that? I'm going to give you five answers to that question. First of all, at a higher level, no human being has the right to question the Bible. I don't recognize a human being's right to question the Bible. It is a divine book. I don't have the right to question it. The Bible is not merely a human piece of literature to be dissected for the purpose of approval or disapproval. How can those of the kingdom of darkness judge the book of light? They can't. In fact, Jesus said in John 12, 48, that the words he has spoken, and this can be extended to the entirety of Scripture, the words that he has spoken will judge all who rejected his words in the final judgment. That all humanity will be judged by the word of God. We don't judge the word. The word judges us. Peter said in 2, Timothy, 2 Peter rather 3.16 that the ignorant and the unstable, meaning unbelievers, they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Apostle Paul said that the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. How can someone who can't understand the Bible be a judge of the Bible? Can't happen. Second, the statement is not true that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. In the Old Testament law, harsh, cruel slavery is condemned. It is condemned. There were very clear laws for the humane and proper treatment of slaves such that the slave was, was to be content was to be happy, was to be well taken care of. He was to be cared for. He was to be given a day of rest along with everybody else. Third answer to that is that this is a question generally asked by people who want to fit the Bible to their purposes instead of finding God's purposes in the Bible. The world continues to try to foist on the church and on the Bible the responsibility to fix society to fix the ills of the world. That's not our job. And that's not why the Bible exists, to fix the ills of the world. The fact is, is that we live in a sinful world. There are massive consequences to this sin. And the inhumane subjugation of human beings is one of those consequences. The Bible doesn't fix the ills of the world. The Bible will fix the world by fixing humanity. But through salvation, not through social justice, not through any, any sort of external changes. The fourth answer to that question, the question betrays a faulty assumption that the goal of Christianity is to make everyone the same, that that's the goal of Christianity, to make us all the same and exactly in the same position in society. Is that what the Bible teaches? 
Jesus said that in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, some believers will have authority over 10 cities, others over five. What does that imply? A difference in position. 1 Corinthians 3 teaches a variety of of rewards to the believer in Christ based on his faithfulness on earth in this life. Isaiah 49.23 speaks of the kings and the queens of the coming kingdom of Christ. Revelation 22.5 pictures believers in Christ reigning forever and ever. What does that imply? There's people to rule over. Kings in Revelation 21 will bring their offerings to God in New Jerusalem. So a future society with no hierarchy of any kind is not really supportable in Scripture. What do you call a future society? What do you call a society, rather, with no hierarchy at all? You call it Marxism. That's not what the Bible teaches. The goal of Christianity is not to form a Marxist society. The goal of Christianity is to save the lost from their sin. And listen, according to 1 Corinthians 3, there will be some Christians who who make it to heaven, but as it were, as somebody naked running through a fire. But can I tell you this? My dad told me this once. Better to be the lowest of the low in heaven than the highest of the high in hell. And there's a fifth answer to that question. The Bible condemns the sin that is the cause of harsh slavery. Because not all slavery is sin in the Bible. In the Old Testament law, God provided a a form of slavery in order to provide opportunities for the poor to regain wealth. And listen to this. What do we do with thieves today? We lock them up. What good does that do? It doesn't do any good. In the Old Testament law, what did thieves have to do? They became a slave to the one from whom they stole until they made up for what they stole. Natural consequences. And you know what some of those thieves did sometimes at the end, according to the law of God? Sometimes at the end of their time, they said, this family's been so good to me, I would like to offer my services for the rest of my life to them. You see, in the Old Testament, slavery became a form of redemption. The much bigger issue is not slavery. The issue is sin. And sin is what has caused slavery to be one of the most horrible blights on human history. And the Bible not only condemns sin, but the Bible provides the answer to sin in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to come back to this question later of why there isn't a big emphasis in the Bible on ending slavery in the world. But for now, just to explain the text, Paul is saying that all who are slaves as believers, no matter the salvation status of their masters, are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor there's two aspects to this worthy of all honor there's the obvious aspect and the less obvious let me do the obvious aspect first the obvious aspect is that the masters are to be treated with honor in fact this is a theme we've already seen in this whole section in first timothy all the people in the church are to be treated with honor chapter 5 1 through 2 the widows are to be treated with honor chapter 5 verse 3 and verse 16 The hardworking elders are to be treated with honor. Chapter 5, verse 17. But here you get something that is very, very emphatic. They're to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. It's a word that means complete, total, not partial, not part way. In verse 2, we see the opposite of honor, and that is being disrespectful. In Colossians 3, verse 22, Paul said that slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Ephesians 6, verse 5, slaves obey your earthly master with fear and trembling. 
That's the obvious application, the obvious aspect. No rebellion. Don't be a troublemaker. Don't be contentious. Don't be difficult. Be dependable. Be obedient. But here's the less obvious aspect. Paul said in regard to in regards to the masters, to regard the masters rather as worthy of honor. He says, regard them as worthy of honor. That's not speaking of external obedience only. That's speaking of a heart attitude of what you must think. This is an internal disciplined thought life of the heart. Paul continues in Colossians 3.22 going into verse 23. He says, slaves, obey in everything who those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. What does this mean? It speaks of a determined outlook of your mind, a belief that doesn't rest on certain feelings, but on facts. If you're a parent, I can give you an easy illustration for this. Now, maybe I shouldn't say as a parent because you don't want to know this about your kids. How about picture yourself as a kid? Because I did this as a kid before I was saved. My mother or my father would say, Steve, go do this. And I would say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. And the minute they turn their back, I'm all, yeah, like that. Did I obey? Yes. Was it from a proper heart attitude? No, it was sinful. What Paul is saying is that slaves obey from a willing heart, that they want to. And he gives two important reasons to regard them as worthy of all honor. Reasons far more important than a Christian's personal comfort or convenience or hopes or dreams. The two reasons for slaves to obey this command. The first reason, so the name of God may not be reviled. What is the word reviled? It's not a word we use a lot. I, I wish it would be brought back into use because it's a useful word, but it's a biblical word that means to put down, to belittle, to cut down, to make light of. In fact, this particular Greek word, we get our word blaspheme from this word. We use a different word. We call it verbal abuse. The name of God is of paramount importance. Trusting God for salvation is said to be naming the name of God. In 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Romans 10.13 says to be saved, we call upon the name of the Lord. Everything we do is to be done in the name of the Lord. Why is that? We're representing Him. We're representing His character Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, accurately representing God. One of my grandmothers gave me a a plaque when I was a, a, a little kid and it had my last name on it, Swartz. My grandma Swartz gave me this plaque and it just had a little saying on it and it said, whatever you do, remember that you carry my name. I never forgot that. The name of God represents his character, his reputation. Everything that we are as Christians is intertwined with the name. Disobedience, disruption would have had serious consequences on the reputation of the church, the perceived purpose of the gospel, which is not a social gospel, and then it would have a consequence on the name of God. One of our greatest examples of a slave in Scripture is Joseph. Because you see, Joseph was the same no matter his station in life. 
He was always a blessing. He was a blessing when he was the prime minister of Egypt. He was a blessing before that when he was the household managing slave of Potiphar. And he was a blessing when he was a servant in prison. He was the same. The name or the reputation of God will either be honored or dishonored based on the behavior of those who call upon the name. Let me put it to you this way, and the the application to yourself is becoming clear. A slave living dishonorably, you ready for this? Transfers disgrace to God. Transfers disgrace to God. He gives a second reason to obey this command. The second reason is that the teaching, the doctrine may not be reviled. What Paul is saying here is that slavery is a gospel opportunity. That a master generally has to deal with pilfering, with bad attitudes, with a clear emotional division between himself and between the slaves. But if a slave begins to be honorable, begins to work extra hard to be helpful, to be respectful, how about this one, loyal? How about this one, kind? How about this one, loving? The gospel was on display as a life-changing event of salvation and it proved the reality of a Holy Spirit and dwelt believer in Christ. But if a Christian slave didn't act any differently than any other slave, just acted like a disgruntled servant, then the gospel is reviled. It's verbally abused. It's, it's said to be useless. It's said to be pointless. It's said to be powerless. Any tension created by slaves might be attributed to the gospel itself. Well, that's a worthless gospel. This guy's talking about Jesus all the time, and he's the worst slave I've got. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul gives a similar command, and he gives the reason for it. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, here's the reason, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. What does the word adorn mean? It means to decorate. It means to make it beautiful. That the slave's life was to make the gospel beautiful, decorative. You notice what Paul's major concern is not. His major concern is not, well, you should try to change your circumstances. Or you should be indignant that you're a slave. Or you should demand your rights. Or you should demand reparations. Whatever you want to say, that's not his focus. His concern was the reputation of God and the reputation of the gospel. Infinitely more important than an individual's station in life. I should mention this. The foundation of this command is different than some of Paul's other commands. For example, for Christian marriage, the foundation is Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.31. For children obeying their parents, the foundation is the fifth commandment, Ephesians 6.3. Both of those are eternal, unchanging grounds for these commands. But for instructions to slaves, the foundation is situational and practical. The church is not called to, nor is it capable of ending slavery. The church is not called to create a a perfectly just society. In, In Roman times, half the people were slaves. If the church tried to end slavery, it would have thrown the world into chaos, and frankly, it would have completely distracted from the true purpose of the church, and that is to promulgate the gospel, to promulgate spiritual freedom, And because the primary concern for Paul was the honor of God and the evangelistic mission of the church, 
He always stayed focused on those issues. He always did. Now, for example, 1 Timothy 5.14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, to give no occasion for slander to the adversary. No occasion for the, for the gospel to be slandered. In Titus 2, verse 5, young women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. There's that word again. Paul told Titus in Titus 2, verse 8, that he was to be a model of sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing to say about us, nothing evil to say about us. In other words, that the unbeliever has to admit, you know, I don't agree with this whole Christianity thing, but I have to admit Christians are the nicest people I've ever met. What about Christian slaves who have Christian masters? What about them? Our first inclination is to assume that the Christian master would automatically release the Christian slave of his obligation. That may have happened in some cases, but that wasn't the majority of the time. But what happened apparently much more prevalently is indicated by the present tense command in verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The present tense command is must not be disrespectful. What does that indicate? That's what was happening already. That was already a problem in the church of Ephesus. It was a failure of Christian slaves to acknowledge the believing master's worldly authority over him. Now, are they equal in Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3.11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That doesn't erase all distinctions, it creates spiritual equality. We're all equal in Christ But the other realities remain. There's still male and female. There's still Jew and Greek. And there's still slave and free. But Paul says to the believing slaves that just because their masters are also believers, that doesn't give them grounds for disrespect. Paul does not call for a general rebellion or a protest or even really questioning of the institution. He simply calls for submission. That's it. That's it. He goes beyond that, though, and he says, not only do you avoid disrespecting a believing master, just the opposite, the slave must serve all the better. There's to be a a greater effort, a more copious determination to be a blessing. And in fact, this is a great word here. They are to be, the end of verse 2, a benefit to the master. Why is this? He gives two reasons at the end of verse 2. First, simply because the masters are believers. They're believers. Galatians 6 verse 10, uh, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We give preference to the believer. And the second reason says simply because the masters are beloved of God. 
Romans 1.7 says that the Christian is loved by God. The slave is to obey the master from a pure heart because that master is loved by God. Paul is urging slaves to not see the spiritual relationship with their masters as something that obligates the masters. You ready for this? It's to be something that obligates the slaves to be an even better benefit. One scholar wrote a very good application. He said, quote, How easily we interpret the direction of responsibility to flow toward ourselves rather than from ourselves. Now, I want this to sink in because this is, this is a stunning concept. Being a slave to a Christian master was to be seen as an opportunity to serve a fellow believer at a very high level, to serve with excellence, and it was to bring true joy and true satisfaction, true contentment. And by serving in this way, here's the irony, here's the paradox, here's the twist. The master now becomes obligated to the slave. There's a debt of gratitude that's incurred, and the slave is serving from this wonderful position, the position of having power in the Spirit of God, the position of nobility that he's acting graciously and magnanimously. He's serving from a position of honor. He's esteeming and valuing his master and thus being pleasing to the Lord who is the true master of them both. And so the irony is, is, is who's in the better position? I could argue theologically the slave is in the better position. What's the whole point of these two verses? The point is, is that there are incredible eternal advantages to simply being a faithful slave. Let me list them for you again. The name of God is exalted. The gospel is shown to be true. The opportunity to love a fellow believer is right there. And the peace and joy and contentment is yours. How? By being satisfied right where you are. As a matter of fact, Paul gave advice to Christian slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 20. I won't read the whole passage to you. I'll just summarize his advice. It's fatherly, proverbial advice in the form of wise counsel. Here's the summary of it. First, he says, if you were saved as a slave, just stay a slave. Don't worry about it. If you can be freed, take the opportunity to do so. The implication is without hurting the master's household. He also says it doesn't really matter that much whether you're a slave or a freedman because all Christians are slaves of Christ. He says if you are a freedman, don't sell yourself into slavery because you've already been bought by the blood of Christ. If you could summarize this, verse 24, he says, in whatever condition each was called, in other words, what status of life you were in whenever you were saved, let him remain there with God. In other words, just let it be okay to be wherever you are. Be content. Another way this has been said is don't try to have what you want. Just want what you have. Now, that's the explanation of the text. I'm going to look at the theology. Let me give you five theological truths that are embedded in or, or at least implied by this text with some other texts helping us as well. Five theological truths. First, the Christian life is a life of submission. The Christian life is a life of submission. This is the opposite of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity false gospel that leads people straight to hell says that the Christian life is one of elevating you. The Christian life is not. The Christian life is one of making you a slave to whatever God would have you to do. It's a life of submission and it's based on the sovereignty of God. 
And one of my favorite stories in the Bible about the sovereignty of God is the story of Philemon, a wealthy man from Colossae who's a believer, and Onesimus, a slave of Philemon who was an unbeliever, who ran away and in the sovereignty of God runs into a guy named Paul. And Paul tells him the gospel and Onesimus, the slave, gets saved. And Paul returns him to Philemon. And he says, not just as a slave, but much more as a brother. And they coexisted together in the church of Colossae as fellow workmen for the gospel, each of them sovereignly born to the situation they were in. And there's speculation that it may have been that Philemon freed Onesimus, but that is not the emphasis of the book of Philemon. The emphasis is that they, they relish being brothers together. If you fight the sovereignty of God, you are on the road to discontentment to spiritual pain, to spiritual anguish. Every Christian submits to someone. Every Christian does. And one of the defining features of the Christian life is a happy willingness to submit to authority which God has placed over you. The Christian life is a life of submission. It's the second theological truth. The glory of God is the highest priority. The glory of God is the highest priority. Did you notice that the name and the reputation of God and the gospel, that's Paul's prime concern. He doesn't say, if, you're, if you have a terrible master, here's some, some recourse you have, here's some actions you should take. He says, no, represent God well, represent the gospel well. And there's a natural peace and contentment that comes from just accepting your circumstances and we enjoy that, but that's just a byproduct. That's not Paul's primary reason. I believe that in the American church, by and large, we have lost a concern, we've lost a compassion for the, a a passion rather, for the worthiness of God, for the veracity and the truthfulness and the elevated nature of the gospel of Christ. Paul's instruction to slaves is easily applied across the board in every area of life. Here's the question you ask. What choice could I make right now that would elevate and glorify the name of God the most and not besmirch the truth of the gospel by showing that being a Christian made no difference in my life? What choice will glorify God the most? There's a third theological truth. We've alluded to this already, but I want to nail this point home. We are all slaves of Christ himself. We're all slaves of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Ephesians 6.5-7, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Paul is writing to slaves in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. And you might say, well, it's easy for Paul to say he's not a slave. Yeah, he was. Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ. He considered himself a slave of Christ. We're all slaves of Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus uses the fact that you are his slave, bought and paid for at the cross. He uses it as a reason to obey him. Did you know that? Now, we often talk about our love for Christ as motivation for obedience, and that is true. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
I think a little bit less, we talk about obeying Him because we are bought and paid for. Because Christ owns you. He purchased you at the cross. Now, I want to tell you where He talks about this. And it's a clear, clear lesson. Jesus told the apostles in Luke 17, 3 and 4, He said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, the apostles were shocked by this because it was generally thought that if you forgave somebody three times, you were, you were welcome to cut them off from then on. But he says seven times in one day. If you do the math, that's every two and a half hours. And they're shocked by this. This endless forgiveness to the one that repents. And they, they cried out to Jesus. They said, increase our faith. And so Jesus told them a parable to illustrate the reason that they were to obey him. He says in Luke 17, Will any of you who has a servant plowing, a slave, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? In other words, will you say to a servant, oh, come in and have dinner and cool off a little bit. Go take a shower. That's, that's nice. No. He says, will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implied answer is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say... We are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. The title of slave is a title that all who serve Christ are glad to have. To all who are burdened by the weight of their sin, Jesus makes an offer. Let me make you my slave. Did you know he made that offer? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. The implication is with your sin. And I will give you rest. You ready for this? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a fourth theological concept. Humble obedience now results in exaltation later. Humble obedience now results in exaltation later. Back in Ephesians 6, After telling slaves to obey their masters from the heart, Paul gives a hope. Ephesians 6, 8, he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, or he's free. Paul tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does this mean? It means we look beyond this life to the life that's to come. We look beyond Peter goes on to promise to all who suffer in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus will tell the faithful. Matthew 25.21, His Master said to Him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. In other words, the obedient slaves of this age will be the kings and queens of the next. In fact, think about this. If there are levels of reward and responsibility based on faithfulness on this earth, 1 Corinthians 3 is very clear about this, 
It may be that a faithful and good Christian slave with a less than faithful and not very good Christian master, the tables might be turned in eternity. The master might be the one saying, what can I get you, sir? But how do you deal with the injustice of a lower position, of a humble station, of a difficult situation? Well, you deal with it by believing the scriptures about the justice of God. And this is our fifth theological concept or or truth. Injustice now will be repaid later. Injustice now will be repaid later. Don't worry about it being paid back now. It will be repaid later. Speaking of the harsh master, Paul promises in Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. What does that mean? God will not care less, couldn't care less what a man's position on earth was. He'll judge him. Psalm 37.28, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Justice is coming. It just doesn't come as quickly as we would like it to come. The martyrs of the great tribulation cry out to God in heaven as pictured in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Here it is. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, justice is coming. It's coming. We just wait. The psalmist prays in Psalm 94, 1 and 2, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. I believe that the Holy Spirit works through preaching. I wouldn't do this if I didn't. And I believe that even now He is filling gaps in your understanding as we've done explanation in theology. But I want to suggest some more obvious applications to this text. And we'll just do three of them. Applications. First of all, be a benefit to those in authority over you. Be a benefit to those in authority over you. All submission relationships are to have an attitude of determination to be a benefit. I have a master. My master is Christ. And he's commanded me as a pastor in 1 Peter 5, 2, to shepherd the flock of God. Do you know that never in the New Testament is the church ever called the pastor's flock? You are the flock of God. The church is not the pastor's church. It is the bride of Christ. And therefore, I'm commanded to be a benefit to Christ by being a benefit to you, by serving you. It's you I serve. In fact, Paul named his relationship to the church. You know what his relationship to the church was? He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your slaves. For Christ Jesus. For Jesus' sake. If you're a child under the authority of your parents and you claim to be a Christian, then be a benefit to your authority. Don't be difficult. Don't be a drain on the energy of your parents. The household is not all about you. Trumpets didn't sound when you were born. (laughs) Be a servant. 
be a help, be a delight, be the child that you hope to have. What do parents tell rotten kids? I hope you have a kid just like you. If you're a wife under the authority of your husband, don't waste your life begrudgingly just getting through your marriage. Embrace this as a task that's God-ordained and be a benefit. Ask your husband how he wants you to be a benefit. Don't guess, just ask. And of course, the most common application to the slave-master relationship, and I've stayed away from it on purpose because I want this to apply across the board, but the most common application to the slave-master relationship in the New Testament traditionally has been the employee-employer relationship. And that is a worthy application. Let me ask you a question. If you're employed by someone else, do you pray daily for their benefit? Do you pray for their benefit? Do you endeavor to be a blessing to that person or to that company for the sake of the name of Christ? Not to the extent of being asked to sin, but honestly, a Christian should be seen as the best employee to have, not the worst. I've gotten emails from employers, non-Christian employers before, saying, I believe so-and-so goes to your church. Can you tell them to show up on time? What am I supposed to say to that? I send an apology. The gospel of Christ would tell us to be the best employee, not the worst. Yeah, I'll call them. I get asked on occasion, how am I supposed to have an impact as a Christian at work? And I think the expected answer is, well, you should have a Bible study or you should hold up signs and placards or you should have your Bible on your desk and that sort of thing, and that's fine. The first and best answer is, be a terrific worker. Be a good worker. Go above and beyond. That opens the door to the opportunity to share your faith. Being a lousy, complaining employee closes that door. You work as unto the Lord. By the way, what does that mean? It means that there is no job that you can't be content in. Every one of them, because you're working for the Lord. Whatever mundane thing you're doing, if you're doing, if you do the same thing 280,000 times a week, you say, Lord, I want the 279th, 999,000th one to be just as good as the first one. Because it's for you. Part of trusting the Lord is being a benefit to those in authority over you. Yes, even those that you don't feel deserve it. And it brings great peace and satisfaction to what you do. This is revolutionary. Because it puts those in a lesser position to have a greater influence and a greater testimony. It's the second application. Guard the name with your life. Guard the name with your life. The reputation of God, the reputation of the gospel is infinitely more important than your personal happiness. It is way more important than your personal happiness. It's way more important certainly than your your freedom. Guard the name in your marriage. Guard the name with your children. Guard the name in your business. Guard the name as a master. Guard the name as a slave. That is your top priority. The name of Christ is more important than your success. It's more important than money. The question of treating someone who is a believer like a brother should always be at the forefront. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone in your life that you would be ashamed to tell that you're a Christian? Is there anyone in your life that you would be ashamed to see them walk through the door? It's one of the reasons I love being a pastor. It is a, it is a huge guardian for me because when i run into people in the community i know how god works if i'm mean to someone they're going to walk through that door 
And they're going to see me in this pulpit and have a look of disgust and turn around. I never want to see that happen. If somebody walked in this church and they saw you, would they be disgusted and walk back out? Your submissive, gracious, kind behavior toward others has a direct bearing on the gospel, on the reputation of the name of God, on the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ. The point of the Christian life is not to be freed from your circumstances. The point of the Christian life is to honor the name in whatever circumstances God puts you. That's it. One more application. Prioritize the success of the gospel over solving your problems. Prioritize the success of the gospel over solving your problems. The gospel's truth as represented by visibly changed lives is of infinite more importance than your personal happiness, your personal success, your rights, your your personal fulfillment. Paul is clear about this. The slaves obey for the sake of the teaching. If you get stopped by a law enforcement officer, and maybe even if he's in the wrong, the issue is not who is right and who is wrong. The issue is how did I treat that officer in that moment? If you're treated unfairly at work, the issue is not will I receive justice? The issue is will I respond in a way that would not harm the cause of the gospel? If your marriage is difficult for any number of reasons, the the issue is not how can I make myself happy? How can I get everything I want? The issue is how can I most honor and glorify Christ even to my own detriment? How can I keep my marriage from being a, a black mark on the cause of the gospel of Christ? Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he, he talks about being sued wrongfully or being, being harmed wrongfully. He, he says, just take it. Just take it. Just take the wrong. Don't harm the cause. And you can plug that principle into every single area of your life and it changes everything. And you know what it gives you? It gives you peace. Because people who don't believe they have any rights aren't looking for them. It gloriously removes your so-called rights and instead looks to give honor to God and to the gospel. This is a terrific biblical counseling question. Most of the reason people get into counseling is because they have one question. I don't know what to do. So how do you answer that? You can answer with another question. What would give the most honor and glory to God and honor the gospel as being life-changing? Do that. God is more concerned with your godliness and accurate representation of the power of the gospel in the midst of a trial than he is with solving the problem. Why? Because they're all going to be solved anyway. I made the mistake of putting a statement similar to that on Twitter this week just for fun. Boy, did I get hit on that one. Oh, but Jesus is all about compassion and Jesus is all about social justice and all that, all that baloney. I didn't know I could hit the, that many block buttons so fast. <laughs> what happens when you quit trying to solve the problem? You have peace and you have joy. And yes, you pray and you beg God for help. But if your number one concern is, Lord, I'm not so concerned about solving the problem. I'm more concerned about behaving myself while I go through it. Even if you're suffering wrong, suffer wrong with a godly and a holy attitude for the sake of the name. Suffer wrong with a godly and holy attitude for the sake of the gospel. 
First Peter 3, 7, Peter says, For it is better to suffer wrong for doing good, to suffer for doing good, rather, if that should be God's will. Did you catch that? Sometimes it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good. That's His will. And you might say, but I don't want to be in a humble position. I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to be in a subordinate position. I didn't want my family to turn out this way. I didn't want my marriage to turn out this way. I didn't want my career to turn out this way. I didn't want to live in this little bitty house. I wanted more things for my life. I I didn't want what I have. Paul told us what to do. He said in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't just become like a slave. He became a slave who died an unjust death. None of you will ever have that happen to you. Now, earlier I asked the question, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? I wanted to return to that. The Bible does condemn slavery. It condemns the worst kind of slavery, slavery to sin. And Christ is the answer. Becoming the slave of God bought by Christ is the answer. In Romans 6, beginning in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. In the verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Do you understand that every human being is a slave? Every human being is a slave. You're either a slave of sin and you will be for all eternity, or you're a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ. And the Christian understands it is far better to be a temporary slave in a sinful world, but freed from the slavery of sin. Better to be a slave of Christ. He is a good and a loving master. And rest assured, if you still lose sleep over injustice in the world, Christ is coming. Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What a great day that's going to be. But what do you do in the meantime? What's your duty now? Honor the name. Amen? Let's do that together. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of this passage. We are all slaves. If we are in Christ, we are slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. And the one who is not in Christ is sadly still a slave to sin. And we would pray, Lord, we would earnestly pray that anyone hearing these words who knows in their heart that he's still a slave to sin would come to the light 
leave the darkness, that the Spirit of God, even in these moments, would make that transfer from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness. We humbly bow before you. We want to do our duty to our Savior, to our Master. We want to honor the name of God. Let us be accurate representations of Christ. Let us never let our lives be that which brings disgrace to the name, but rather brings grace to the name, brings honor and brings glory all to you. May we relish an eternity of being your slaves because as Jesus said, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And as slaves, he leads us to the glory of eternal life. Let us humble ourselves here in whatever station we are in, in this life. Let us be the very best at what we do to the honor of the name. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.